мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like the podcast and want to support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. From May 1918 to February 1921, the Georgian Democratic Republic, led by the Georgian Social Democratic Party, offered a potential socialist and humane alternative to the Bolsheviks, Soviet Russia. So what was the Georgian Democratic Republic's experiment to create a socialist state, the events that led to its founding and demise, and the important players who implemented a Marxist-inspired social and economic transformation? And... What does the Republic have to teach us today? For some insight, I turn to Eric Lee to talk about his new book, The Experiment, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921. Eric Lee is a journalist, historian, and trade union and political activist in the United States and the United Kingdom. He's the author of Saigon to Jerusalem, Conversations with Israel's Vietnam Veterans, and Operation Balsat, the British raid on Sark and Hitler's commando order. His most recent book is The Experiment, Georgian's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921, to published by Zed Books. Here's Eric Lee. So I thought we you have this book, uh, The Experiment, um, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921, and it's really interesting because of there's, you know, as you know, there's many books have come out in the last year for the centennial of the Russian Revolution, and I think yours is one of the few that focuses on uh, an area outside of, you know, Central European Russia. So I thought we'd start talking about what drew your interest to researching and writing about Georgia, and specifically about the experience of the Georgian Democratic Republic. I should start by saying that I wasn't particularly interested in Georgia as a country. I, I don't speak Georgian. I don't read it. I'm not ethnically Georgian. I, I can't talk about Georgia before the 19th century without sounding silly. So my interest was not in the Georgians. It was actually in the, the Mensheviks, you know, the democratic socialists in, in, in the Russian Empire. And and I, I would consider myself kind of a latter-day Menshevik. So for me, the idea that there was a one part of the Russian Empire, only one part, that the Mensheviks won the revolution and the Bolsheviks lost, that was Georgia. And and you said that you um, consider yourself you're attracted to the Mensheviks and you consider yourself a latter day Menshevik. So what what does that mean? Well, it, it means I mean obviously not literally a Menshevik because sure. you know it's, it's been a while. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, you know what it means is, is look the, the Mensheviks are what we would today call democratic socialists, and we and we add the, the adjective democratic because there are other kinds of socialists and and we're not those kinds. So the Mensheviks represented a, a tradition, I would say the, the authentic and Marxist tradition of, of socialism, which was a very democratic uh, tradition, very committed to human rights and to the 
value of human life and things like that, whereas the Bolsheviks was something totally different and eventually totalitarian. So in a way, you're trying to revive that tradition, at least in the Russian Empire context. Yes, I'm looking for the roots of that tradition. I mean, part part of it is, I have to say that um, from an American point of view, I was very involved in the campaign of Bernie Sanders when he ran for president. And Bernie Sanders kept saying he was a democratic socialist. And I think a lot of the people who supported him thought that sounded really nice, but didn't really have a clue what that meant. So I thought we should look at the history and see what, what does that word mean. You start the book by talking about uh, Noe Jordania and, and how, and I thought you'd, I'd ask you to speak about who he was and and other some other Georgian Marxists who are, who are in the Menshevik wing and how they fit into the larger revolutionary movement in the Russian Empire. Sure, uh, and and if I mention um, any of them, I'll probably mispronounce all their names. So hopefully, hopefully, no Georgians are actually listening to this. But um, look, Jordania was the most famous and most important of the Georgian Marxists, and he's totally unknown outside of Georgia today, except to a handful of academics and scholars. But in, in his time, in his time, he was as important a figure in the Russian revolutionary movement as Lenin or Trotsky or any of the others. Uh, and he he had the same kind of trajectory that someone like Trotsky had. I mean, he. At an early age, he traveled abroad. He studied in Warsaw. He traveled all over Western Europe. He met all the leading socialist thinkers in Western Europe. And he d- became quite an, an interesting, original, insightful Marxist thinker, ri- writing about issues like the national question and the agrarian question and things like that. And he and all the other Georgians, they, they all did this, the top leaders. They all spoke many languages and traveled around the world and became part of the international movement. They became quite prominent leaders out of all proportion to the size of Georgia in the Russian revolutionary movement. And in that sense, they were very much like the Jewish leaders of the movement, an ethnic minority, but disproportionately influential in the Russian Social Democratic Party. Hmm. That's actually an interesting comparison to uh, the, the Jewish presence because um, and do you think that there was something particularly Georgian that they brought to the table in their experience, similar to how you know Jewish revolutionaries are coming from you know a Jewish background? Did their how did their ethnicity you know matter in any way? Well, a part of it was well, I guess we'll talk a little bit later about what actually was happening in Georgia at the time. So they were they were influenced by the historical developments taking place in Georgia, but also Georgia as a country um, always saw itself as part of Europe. And, and now it's a major issue in Georgia. They, they self-define as Europe, whereas parts of the Russian Empire very much were seen as Asian or Eurasian or half Asian. There were lots of terms. You know, Lenin talked about it being a semi-Asiatic, you know, and so on. But Georgia was not. Georgia was a European country, European-facing. They saw themselves as part of the modern world and, and, and so on. So they were, they were different from the rest of the people in the empire. And, and and you you speak about this really uh, the chapter you have called dress rehearsal, which of course is a is an echo of or a, a, um, is related to the fact that Lenin called nineteen oh the nineteen oh five revolution itself as a dress rehearsal. But you speak of the this short um, lived Gurian Republic, which of course comes before nineteen oh five. So talk about what this was all about and and its significance. Yeah, I should first of all say that one of the people who read that chapter before we published the book, you know, kind of yelled at me that I shouldn't have said dress rehearsal. Because he says, dress, dress rehearsal, he says, implies that they, they knew what they were doing, that they were actually preparing for something else, which wasn't the case. But but uh, yes, look, before 1905, obviously, there was unrest in many parts of the Russian Empire. It exploded in 1905. In, in Georgia, in the western part of Georgia, uh, a localized peasant rebellion grew into a kind of province-wide and the national rebellion of the peasants. And for a lot of reasons, the Russian 
army was not able to suppress it. Part of the reasons, I, I give a, a full account of this in the book, part of the reasons were the Russians sent very odd people down to Georgia to take care of this. That they would send on the one hand the most brutal military you know, generals who were going to go and slaughter them. And at the same time, these like liberal academics who wanted to talk to the Gurians to find out what they really wanted. And so the Russians handled it really badly and couldn't get rid of this. And this lasted for something like three years, where eventually these people had control of their own province with no Russian state presence at all and created a society run according to their own values, which was very democratic. And and how does the how does this experience uh, influence or play into how some of the Georgian Marxists like Jordania understand the revolutionary movement? Because here you have you know contrary to say I don't know Marxist orthodoxy, here in in the Gurian Republic you have peasants. It's mostly in in Georgia in general you have a large peasant. It's mostly peasants. The working class presence is rather small. Most of them are probably going to Baku, to the oil fields, to to work if they are proletarians. So how does the peasant question or politics figure in all of this? Well, part of what's going on is, is Jordani himself and several of the other top leaders are, them, are themselves Gurians. They come from this part of Western Georgia. And when the when it happens, when the, this peasant uprising begins, their reaction as Marxists is they treat it with contempt. Uh, because Marx believed it would spoke about the idiocy of rural life. He didn't like peasants. He thought they were reactionary on the whole, which was probably true. But in this particular case, the peasants were incredibly well-informed. They, they got newspapers. They had libraries. They all went to school. It was an, an unusual peasantry in Guria. And the, the Social Democrats in Georgia started rethinking their attitude toward the peasants while this was happening. And eventually came up with the, these kind of linguistic ways to circumvent traditional Marxism, they talked about agricultural workers, meaning they were now workers. So if they were workers, they could join the party. And at first, they couldn't really join the party. They could be like auxiliary members and members of various committees. But later on, they just said, oh, the hell with it. They could be actual social democrats. And suddenly, the party went from being this small party of intellectuals and, as you say, a small number of workers, suddenly became this mass party with thousands of members, which didn't happen to the Marxists anywhere else in Russia, ever, at any time. You know, it's actually quite interesting because, you know, in the standard take in revolutionary parties in Russia and within Russia proper, you know, peasants more often gravitate towards social socialist revolutionary party because they actually, you know, address peasant needs. And here you have a different situation where they're actually gravitating, or at least the Marxist party in Georgia is changing its its vision to include those peasants. Yes, exactly. And and the SR party, which became the dominant party of the peasantry leading up to the 1917 revolution, that party barely existed in Georgia. It was, it was there when it was legal, but it had very little support because the Marxists sort of understood the peasant question in Georgia, which they didn't in the rest of Russia. So like I, like I said in, in starting, your book decenters the Russian revolution, um, which is refreshing, uh, considering that so much over the last year that's been published is I think, for the most part, re mostly rehashing kind of old questions. Uh, and here you're bringing something new to the table. So how did the revolutions of 1917 play out in Georgia? Yeah, in, in, a, in a sense, they didn't. I mean, it, in 1917 in Russia, you had, you know, the mass waves of strikes in, 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 um, in Petrograd. You had um, mutinies of the army, all kind of stuff. You didn't have any of that in Georgia. The Georgians sort of sat back and watched the regime crumble. And you know they, they got a telegram from Petrograd when the Tsar was was booted out, saying you know there's there's no there's no government now you're on your own, and the reaction 
in, in uh, the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, then called Tiflis, was the viceroy representing the Tsar, sort of called in the Social Democrats and said, uh, I, I, I'm gone, I'm out of here, you know, it's yours, take the power. So there was, no rev- there was no revolution per se, they were handed the power by the, Tsar, by the crumbling Tsarist regime. Yeah, because you point out that they already have a, a, a really strong presence in the regional Duma, and you, you point, also point out that, you know, whereas, say, in Petrograd or other places around the Russian Empire, you have this situation of so-called dual power, but this was never the case in Georgia. It was literally just the power. Yes, there was a Soviet, as they were in most Russian cities, in Tbilisi, which was entirely controlled by the Social Democrats. Uh, Noah Jordania was effectively the leader of the country from the moment the Tsarist regime crumbled. So um, the, the, there was no dual power because the, social, the same Social Democrats controlled both the Soviet in, in, in Tbilisi and, and eventually the, the Georgian Republic itself. And what is the, did they have any connections to the wider, say, you know, because um, Tseretelli, for example, who was one of the chairman of the Petrograd Soviet, of course, is Georgian. Uh, do do the Georgian Marxists who are in Georgia at this time, what is their relationship to the revolution at large? Do they have a lot of connections or are they seeing things more going their own way? No, they, they, were, they were absolutely loyal members of the Russian Social Democratic Party. And, the, and their leaders, two of their most important leaders, Tseretelli, who you've mentioned, and Shekhidze, were, were, were both in Petrograd and they played central roles as Russian revolutionaries, though ethnically Georgian. And the view of the Georgian party was always, until October 1917, the view was Russia will become a federation of you know, states and each state will have some autonomy. And, and in, in this federation, Georgia will be hap- happily be one of the one of the republics or one of the provinces. Like it never crossed their minds that Georgia would become an independent country. Now, not, not, the Social Democrats never spoke in those terms. The, the thing, too, is, you know, you can't really talk about Georgia without addressing the many different nationalities that make up the South Caucasus, uh, not just externally to Georgia, so Azerbaijan, Armenia, then then internally Georgia, so Abkhaz and Ossetians and, and many other groups. So just to deal with the external other nationalities, you, you note that initially Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan, they, they tried to form a kind of trans-Caucasian federation, but this quickly collapsed, I think, after like, what, two weeks, it seems? <laughs> It, it wasn't that quick because the, the Tsarist regime fell in the February Revolution, so in Mar- March on our calendar, 1917. The, the trans the three countries, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, were effectively a federation from that moment. There was a, a, a body set up by the uh, provisional government in Petrograd controlling the whole region. And they were, they functioned, the three of them, as one country for more than a year. Uh, they formally seceded from Russia only in, in April um, 1918. That was a four, I created a, a Transcaucasian Republic. It lasted one month. So wh- so that, that's my question. So what led to its collapse? Because you also have, with all the, with not just Russian, you know, Georgian social democracy and social democratic movements in that region are already, uh, you know, have been there for a while, you also have nationalist movements. You have nationalist movements amongst Armenians, Azerbaijanis, and I would imagine too uh, in Georgia. So how did nationalism and, and various territorial disputes, you know, basically cause this federation to collapse? Well, first of all, you know, the, the, the Tsarist regime itself had a policy of divide and rule and did what they could to encourage these people to fight among themselves quite successfully, uh, something which the Bolsheviks learned from and, and also promoted. Uh, but Oddly enough, the relations were basically all right between the three. The problem was 
this wasn't happening in a in a bubble. This was happening in the real world. And in the real world, the biggest thing that was happening in 1917 and 1918 in that part of the world was the World War. And, and, and many of these accounts of the Russian Revolution talk as if there was no World War. It was still, it was raging. And in, on that front, uh, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, posed a genuine threat to the independence of all three of the countries. And they, and they had very different views on it. Obviously, the, the Azeris, being ethnically Turkish and being Muslim, were sympathetic to the Ottoman Empire. The Armenians were the worst enemies the Ottoman Empire ever had. It's yeah, and they the, experienced a genocide only a few genocide. years prior. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and they had uh, imperial ambitions of their own. The Armenians imagined an Armenian Empire that would rival the Turks in power. They were So these three, they were all affected primarily by the war between Russia and Turkey. And, and that, more than anything else, explains what happened in 1918 and why they couldn't agree and remain a republic together. But they did agree, other three years later, when all three countries no longer existed as independent countries, but their governments met in exile, they agreed that a federation would have been a good idea. And talk about that larger international um, situation, because you have the Germans, and, and there's an effort to to uh, by the Georgians to make some deal with the Ger- Germans to, to get out of the war. Then you have the presence of the British after the war is over. So how does the geopolitical international situation kind of impacting what's going on in the Georgian Democratic Republic? Yeah, well, if you ask kind of tra- traditional left-wing writers or people who are sympathetic to the Bolsheviks, they will always tell you how the Georgians were tools of imperialism and collaborated with the Germans and collaborated with the British, and they were always inviting these imperialist armies to come in, and you know, which is which is ridiculous because it's again ignoring the fact that there was a world war. And what was the major issue facing Georgia as a country on the day it declared independence in in May 1918 was the the Turkish army was invading. I mean, they were taking the city of Batum. Batumi, which is the closest to Turkey on the on the Black Sea, and they were a very serious security threat. And the Georgians did something I think very clever. That the, they were negotiating with the Turks. The Turks were saying, you know, we'll, we'll recognize your independence, but we'd like half of your country, that kind of thing. And the Turks had every right to claim that because they were winning the war. Georgia had no army of its own at this point. And what the Georgians did was they went behind the back of the Turks, literally, and invited the Germans to come and talk to them. The Germans were Turkish allies. And they were the dominant ally. So they would, the Georgian theory was, if we can persuade the Germans, they can tell the Turks to back off and not invade Georgia, you know, stop the invasion of Georgia. And in that sense, they were quite successful. That's what they did. Yeah, and I think another important thing you note is in terms of the international context, the Georgian Marxists are also quite plugged in. I mean, you've already mentioned this, but they're quite plugged into the international socialist movement. Movement, And this issue with the Germans, uh, Karakalski actually plays an important role. So... And then later, they have the uh, one of the conferences of the Second International in Georgia. So what is the relationship to the international Marxist movement, um, particularly the Germans, since they are the largest at that time? Yeah, well, it's the relationship of um, the Germany was the center of the international left for decades. Uh, and, and Karl Kautsky, who, again, today is largely unknown, largely forgotten, but at the time, he was called the Pope of Marxism. He was the, he had, he had, uh, he had known uh, Engels, he had edited Marx's literary works. He'd, he'd completed Das Kapital, which was which was a mere three volumes. He made it into seven. You know, he was um, an outstanding thinker. The whole socialist world looked up to him. And the Georgians knew him. Jordania had met him. And he took a real profound interest in Georgia and eventually came to visit. And, you know, he was he was such an important figure that both Lenin and Trotsky wrote books after the revolution. They took time off from whatever they were doing running Soviet Union or its predecessor, to attack Kautsky and to answer books Kautsky was writing. It's extraordinary. Kautsky wrote a book about Georgia. Trotsky, like in the middle of this Russian civil war, 
stops and writes a book to answer Kalski. Yeah, I, don't, I never understood how these people had time to do this. It's really extraordinary. I know, they're, they're doing it you know, by candlelight using fountain <laughs> pens, you know. So, yes. I mean, I, I always have this view of, like, you know, run, uh, Lenin writing State and Revolution when he's hiding in Finland. It's just very odd. <laughs> I know. But I, mean, I was just, I'm looking at it the other day, obviously, I was quite bored. I found my copy of The Proletarian Revolution and the Renegade Kautsky by Lenin. Now, Lenin, at this point, is the is the chairman of the Council of People's Commissars in a country that has one-sixth of the Earth's surface under its control in the middle of a civil war. And he's knocking off this 100-page book to Dan Sikowski. (laughs) Yeah, these people had some uh, unbound energy that I could never grapple with. (laughs) To to, to get back to your question, the Georgians, Georgians, all of them, the leaders of the party, all knew the Socialist International and its leaders quite well and would attend Congresses regularly. And would, and would hang out in Western Europe. So actually, there were some Georgians already in Western Europe attending the uh, the Versailles Peace Conference who were mingling with and talking to the socialists and trying to organize a delegation that eventually came to Georgia. As, as your book is titled The, the Experiment, um, so a lot of uh, dramatic change occurs in Georgia in, in these, these short years of the Georgian Democratic Republic. And some of the areas that you address in terms of the social and economic transformation are, of course, agrarian reform, which is probably the most important question, um, the issue of labor unions and their relationship to the government and cooperatives, uh, the attempt to you know restructure the economy in different ways. So talk about the importance of these reforms and how did they play out? Sure. I mean, you're right to say the most important by far was the agrarian reform. It was, it was the most important question facing governments in that part of the world. So the Russian Bolsheviks had one approach, which was basically the land should be in the hands of the state. And the people who worked the land should be employees of the state. This was eventually accomplished by collectivization under Stalin, but it was the vision of Lenin and Trotsky from the beginning. And the Georgians had a different approach. Their view was the more traditional Marxist view, which was that in a very poor country, and a country that had elements of what they called the Asiatic mode of production, where the state was quite powerful, you wanted to get the state out of the business of owning land and to create a class of peasant landowners. That this would be would ease the transition into a modern society or a democratic and a, and, a, and a bourgeois society, a capital society. And so the Georgians, their first thing they did was to pass an agrarian reform that basically gave the land to the peasants. And they, they, they confiscated land from, from the nobles and the church and the land that had belonged to the czarist regime, gave it out to the peasants. And every historian who's written about this, you know, other than Trotsky, I mean, every one of them thinks this was an incredible success story. Productivity soared. Peasants became loyal supporters of, of, the, of the government. There were no peasant rebellions, and nobody starved in Georgia, which was what was happening in Russia. So it was quite, and it was a very traditional Marxist approach to how you handle the question of the land in a, in a place like that, in a backward country. No, that, that's interesting because before you, you said that in their Georgian Marxist retooling of their views of the peasants, they began to essentially see peasants as rural proletarians. I'm assuming because they're landless. Um, did so? Was there not a, a discourse that you find in, say, the more Russian Marxists of the rich peasant or the kulak in in Georgia? No, the the, the concept of the kulak and the notion of of classes among the peasantry is a, is a uniquely Bolshevik invention, and it was it was used to justify the massacre of certain peasants. That in, in Georgia, nothing like that happened. The peasants, as a class, were rewarded for their support of of the party and the revolution by being given land. They in turn supported the party and the revolution until the end. Um, it was a fantastic success story. And, and part of it, it wasn't only they were creating co-op, uh, um, 
individual ownership. They were also creating cooperatives on a large scale for, for, for peasant workers. So a lot of the big things they do in Georgia, like making wine, they were doing on a cooperative basis. And it, was, it wasn't all about privatization and making them into little capitalists. It was also preparing them for, for large-scale cooperative enterprises. And what is the relationship to uh, to with labor unions? Well, so the unions is quite an important one, and it's, you know I, I'm a trade unionist. I've been one my whole life, and I've watched how you can measure a country, like whether you'd want to live in a country or not, based on how free and independent its trade unions are. So countries that have trade unions that are controlled by the state are trade are countries you don't want to live in generally. And the the Bolsheviks took the view, and Trotsky was the biggest advocate of this that. Under socialism, once the workers had come to power, there was no need for trade unions. If they existed at all, they would just be arms of the state to get workers to work harder. And and that's that's what the Bolsheviks basically did. And the trade unions which had existed were destroyed and turned into just an arm of the, of the Communist Party. But in Georgia, the trade unions were given full independence. They demanded full independence from the state. They, they would go on strike when they wanted to. And they demanded that the new Georgia Constitution, which was being drafted during this whole three-year process, include a constitutionally recognized right of workers to strike which was a huge achievement. And these, these unions grew and be, they started off tiny. You know, the czarist regime had not allowed unions to form. They became quite powerful. Uh, it, it rushed, you know, Georgia was not a, uh, an industrialized country. Nevertheless, the unions became a very powerful force in the life of the country and were always, always independent of the state. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we, we addressed the, the, the ethnic context outside of Georgia, but of course within Georgia you have many different um, ethnic groups with a lot of grievances, grievances that exist until the present between, say, Abkhaz and Georgians and Ossetians and others. So how did the Georgian Democratic Republic deal with its own minority groups? Yeah, they handled them all in, in different ways with greater and lesser degrees of success. I mean, we, all, we, we know that they screwed up in a big way, for example, with the Ossetians, but they go start at the other end of the scale with some ethnic groups, they handled it with great sensitivity and, and very well. For example, the Georgian Jews. You know, one of the claims to fame of the Bolsheviks, one of the things that they tout as a great success story is they, they gave you know, f- complete freedom to the Jewish people and, and fought anti-Semitism and so on, as if they were the only ones who ever did this. But the Georgians also gave complete freedom to the Jewish community who became quite vocal and active supporters of, of the state and played a role in, in, his, you know, in the drafting of the constitution and so on. So in that, for the, for the Jewish people in Georgia, this was, a, you know, there was no question that these people were great and they were, there was not a hint of racism or chauvinism in the Georgian Social Democrats. And the same, the same was true with the, the peoples closest to Turkey and the Red Batumi, the area known as Ajara. Right. Yeah, where, where an effort had been made to set up an independent state, but it was pretty quickly realized by everyone watching it, the British, the Germans, and so on, that it was simply a, a Turkish proxy state. And this, this is part of the problem in that part of the world, is that if a, an ethnic group, any ethnic group, declares itself an independent republic and demands its right to self-determination, very often there's another power lurking behind the scenes, sometimes quite openly, supporting them and encouraging them. And for Abkhazia and South Ossetia, that was always the Russians, then and now, playing a role behind the scenes sometimes quite openly, uh, encouraging discord and unrest and so on. It doesn't mean, and I talk about this in the book, it doesn't mean that the Georgians were, were wonderful and made no mistakes at all and handled it really well. Sometimes they were insensitive, handled it badly, were excessively repressive, uh, particularly toward the Ossetians, and, and sometimes they played into the hands of the Russians to, to be uh, repressive toward a, 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 a national minority that's rebelling sometimes is counterproductive, and it was counterproductive. And the Russians were able to use 
South Ossetia, for example, as a staging area for the eventual invasion of Georgia in 1921. So it's a mixed, it's a mixed record. And, and, how did, and how did the Georgian Marxists deal with Georgian nationalism? Yeah, it depends who you talk to. I, mean, I get the sense they, they didn't really practice it. They, they, did stuff, they did stuff that any democratic nationalists would do, like they started a university in Georgia and they allowed the national language to flourish. And apparently it was a time of tremendous cultural enlightenment. It was a great, it was a golden age of Georgian culture, those three years. And not only Georgian, there were quite a few Russian intellectuals and artists and theater directors came to Georgia for the freedom they had there during those three years. But there was no sign of particular chauvinism. I mean, Georgia is a tiny country. They can't actually look down on many other countries. So I, I don't think we had that. And the explicitly nationalist parties, like the National Democrats or the, or the Socialist Federalists, these were quite small parties in Georgia. So I don't think, and the Georgians ne- never waged um, an aggressive war against any of their neighbors to grab land. They had it done to them. I mean, the Armenians attacked them and tried to grab land. But the Georgians were not actually particularly imperialistic toward their neighbors either. The, this experiment uh, is crushed in 1921 by the, the Soviet Red Army uh, and the Bolshevik Party. So what led to the downfall of, of this Georgian Republic? And why do you think that – well, I'm trying to let's see if I can form the question right. Well, just answer that. Like what, what led to its downfall? How did it collapse or how was it destroyed? Well, just as I said at the beginning, we have to look at Georgia in the context of, of the First World War that was happening. This is also part of you know, the global geopolitical context, what was happening in 1921. The, the World War had ended. The, the British uh, troops who had come into Georgia after the German troops had left. Um, and by the way, in both cases, the, the, Georgia remained an independent sovereign state. These, these were occupation armies that were not running the country in any sense. Uh, when, the, when the Germans left and the British left, Georgia was left with no occupying army and no protector of any kind. So it was, it was already vulnerable to foreign invasion at this point, including from the Turks. At the same time, both Armenia and Azerbaijan, after just two years of independence, both fell into the hands of the Soviets. In both cases, quite open invasions by Russian forces. These were not spontaneous rebellions of workers and peasants in these countries. These were um, you know, outside invasions by the Russians. So Georgia found itself surrounded on all sides by hostile forces. The, the Bolsheviks had won the Russian Civil War by this point. So you had Russian Bolshevik soldiers on Georgia's northern border. You had uh, the Red Army in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and you had the Turkish army on the other border. So Georgia was encircled by hostile forces and had no support from the outside world at all. So they were vulnerable at this point to an invasion. And what happened to Jordania and the people who were running the country? Well, I mean, they ran it right up to the last minute, and they uh, they were desperately, first of all, trying. They, I mean, they weren't stupid. They knew the Russians would eventually try to invade them, so they were desperately trying to get international support. And this is parallels today in Georgia's foreign policy. Now, they they thought, well, if we can get the British or the French to recognize us, maybe we can get them to send troops or their navies or whatever to protect us, and we can become part of an alliance or something. This they didn't have the time to do this. They their best diplomats working on this for three years. And only at the very end, as Georgia was being invaded, they got recognized suddenly by all these countries. But it was a very last-minute thing. So when the uh, Russians finally did invade in February 1921, the Georgians put up quite a fierce military resistance, unlike Armenia and Azerbaijan, which fell like houses of cards. I mean, Georgia fought back quite powerfully and held off the Red Army for several weeks. But eventually, Jordania and his uh, government moved westward across Georgia, first to Kutaisi and then to the coast, to Batumi, where eventually they had to be evacuated by, I think, French and Italian ships. 
So, so the, the, the government was eventually evacuated. Their very last act before being evacuated was they completed the drafting of the Georgian constitution, and they had a printer in Batumi print copies and left this as their legacy. It's like, this is, this is the model of the kind of society we would have built if you had let us stay in power. And what, what did they do once they were in exile? Oh, well, first, first of all, I mean, they plotted and schemed, as every exile does, to get, to, to get back. You know, they, were, they, were, they were around, because this was a temporary exile. So they were, I mean, one of Jordania's first things, he actually went to the, uh, the annual conference of the British Labour Party very quickly. They went to all the, they had this idea that these socialist and labor parties were somehow going to get them back to Georgia and back to power, that they were going to put pressure on the Bolsheviks at international meetings, and the Bolsheviks would back down. They hold free elections in Georgia. I mean, none of that happened. But while they were doing that, they began preparing for um, a, a rebellion, a people's rebellion in Georgia against the Bolshevik occupiers. And this eventually, after three years, this massive rebellion took place in Georgia, and several of the key leaders of the Georgian Republic were smuggled into the country. Apparently, there was almost no border with Turkey. I mean, it was, it was a very porous border. So these, the architect of Georgia's ag- agrarian reform and the head of the People's Guard, these were very, very prominent social democrats. Uh, Homeriki was one, and Jugeli was the other. They were smuggled into Georgia. They organized secret meetings. They built up this secret army. And in 1924, they staged this massive, very bloody rebellion against the Bolsheviks, which was crushed. So you write it in, in, in your the opening of the book that um, there are plenty of interesting experiments in workers' rule in the 20th century, but a Marxist party carrying out a democratic socialist revolution in an entire country I know of only one example, Georgia. So going back to your beginning interest in this, I, I'd want you to kind of give some more about it. So you, you know, as a, a, a lifelong trade unionist, as somebody involved in left-wing politics, what relevance does the Georgian Democratic Republic have for us today? Okay, first of all, let's start with the fact that history is relevant to us today. That if, if you're trying to change the world, and people on the left are trying to change the world, you want to learn from history and not repeat the mistakes of the past. And the his- history today is, I like to say, just like we talk about fake news, there's a lot of fake history going on. Yeah. There's a lot of nonsense being written, and especially in the, in the, in the popular imagination. I mean, I, I don't think it was like this in, in the States, probably not in Pittsburgh, but in London. London was filled with exhibitions about 100 years of the Bolshevik Revolution, or the Russian Revolution. I mean, every major art gallery and museum, I mean, you're talking the British Library and the Royal Academy and the, the Design Museum, and every one of them had these enormous exhibitions of like Soviet posters and artworks and stuff about you know, so, uh, models of Soviet buildings and how exciting it all was. And it was a bit of a glorification of, so, of the, what was in, an enormous historical failure and tragedy, which was Bolshevism. And this is something the right wing has, has always used, the, the argument that you know, socialism may have sounded like a good idea, but after the, exper- you know, the experience of Russia, it should be clear to everyone it's not a good idea. And apparently this was even used, oddly enough, this was even used like this week by the National Rifle Association, right, arguing that socialism is this terrible, terrible thing. And that people, you can say that because when people hear about socialism, they think about Stalin and all these horrible crimes committed by the Bolsheviks, how terrible life would have been which is all true, but the fact is there was an, there was an alternative. Things could have gone very differently. And the, the Mensheviks, is generally in Russia, and particularly in Georgia, demonstrated that there were other ways of doing socialism. Socialism could have been democratic and humane with a multi-party system and free elections and respect for human rights and a free press and the right of assembly and independent trade unions and all that. And that's what Georgia proved, that there's another kind of socialism. Let me ask you a provocative question about this. 
one could also say, well, you know, yeah, but they also lost. So we don't know how they would have, things would have turned out. How would you address that question? Well, the short answer is that that's true. We don't know how things would have turned out. We have no idea, right? Um, uh, we, we can only guess. If you look, you can say, okay, Russia became really bad, but they had many more years to become terrible. But actually, but, but actually, if you, if you read the history of the first three years of, this, of the Bolshevik Revolution, and, and probably the best things to read are not reading Lenin and Trotsky on this, but to read Solzhenitsyn writing about this. And he, the first time I read The Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, I was shocked to discover that it's not in 1937 that the regime becomes totalitarian. It's in 1917. And that, and that the Cheka, the secret police, is not established in response to you know, the, the civil war. It's established 15 minutes after the Bolsheviks take power. You know, that the, the, the first uh, camps of the Gulag are established in 1917, not in the 1920s, and so on. The, the, the suppression of left-wing newspapers, independent social newspapers, within days of Lenin coming to power, he's banning newspapers. And of course, in January 1918, shortly after seizing power, they disperse by force the elected constituent assembly. So the fact is the Bolsheviks in their first three years, or their first three weeks, their first three days in power, demonstrated a real contempt for democracy and human rights and a lot of values that had previously been associated with Marxism and with the left. And the Georgians, in their three years in power, were able to hold on to those values and show that you could actually build a society, an entire nation, based on those values. So, you know, if you compare the three years in Bolshevik Russia and the three years of Menshevik Georgia, you see two very alternative ways of imagining socialism. And one way is a very positive and appealing one. And it's utterly unknown in the U.S. and in the rest of the West. That was Eric Lee, journalist, historian, and trade union and political activist in the U.S. and U.K. He's the author of Saigon to Jerusalem, Conversations with Israel's Vietnam Veterans, and Operation Balsat, the British raid on Sark and Hitler's commando order. His most recent book is The Experiment, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921, to published by Zed Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or just recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. 